Hello and what's up, everybody? It is the Wind Up Podcast. I am your host, Mike of MTGA Wines. This episode, you got questions, I've got some answers. We're going to be diving into our November question and answer episode. Uh, we've got a whole backlog of stuff to get into. Since we didn't do a QA uh, in October, I've got a few things stacked up that are kind of like post harvest. Uh, questions. We've got everything about uh, winery ownership changes. We've got emerging wine market questions. We got sulfite questions. We got all kinds of stuff to get into. Uh, just a quick reminder if you have questions, want to have them answered here on the show, you can submit them. Just slide into our DMs on any of our social networks. That's Instagram, the Book of Face, uh, the network formerly known as Twitter. Uh, all at MTGA Wines, also on YouTube at MTGA Wines. Uh, if all else fails, you can head to our website, mtgawines.com. Just scroll down to the bottom. There's a little email form you can fill out if you're old school. Just go ahead and send us a note through there, and we'll make sure that we get your questions into the queue. Uh, another quick reminder, please keep liking, subscribing, sharing the podcast with folks who are interested in the world of wine. Uh, this has been... Uh, an amazing kind of first year of knocking this out. Um, we're looking to make uh, some nice, fun, and interesting adjustments to it in the coming year uh, in 2024, including setting up hopefully my home office here. I've been slowly like organizing it a little bit better. So hopefully we can have like guest appearances and actually I like, talk some shop with other people. I wanted to make sure I got through like a full year of doing this before I subjected friends and colleagues to it. Uh, so we'll be doing that. Uh, also, uh, just the quick shameless pitch is that uh, we, with the holidays, I know Hanukkah's around the corner, Festivus is coming up, uh, Christmas, New Year, whatever you got going on. If you are holding off on ordering wine because you're not exactly sure what to get just yet, it's time to sort that out. Uh, we have a bunch of cool stuff available uh, on our website uh, right now. Again, mtgawines.com in the shop there. Uh, you must be 21 years or older to order, obviously. Uh, but the sooner you get your gifting orders in, the sooner they'll be on their way, which means they will arrive on time for the people you're ordering them for. Uh, inevitably, every year we get a bunch of orders like three days before Christmas. And like we, it might get there if we two-day air it or overnight it. But even then, we can't guarantee it because the shipping lanes are just a fucking mess uh, because of so much stuff flying around. So make sure you get your gifting orders in. <gasps> All right, I can take a deep breath. Shameless self-promotion over. Let's go ahead and dive into some of these questions. Now, since we talked a little bit about the holidays, we'll start there. And the first question, this is one we get every single year from people, and it's a good one to ask. And it's, what are your recommendations for bringing wine to holiday parties? And before I forget, I need to timestamp these bad boys. Otherwise, I'm going to completely forget where they are. There we go. There we go. All right. So recommendations for holiday parties. You know, to number one, there there's one kind of rule of thumb that all of us wine drinkers have. And we typically open up good wines, right? When we know other people will appreciate them. If you're taking if you're like me and you're going to your mother-in-law's place and she just loves her box of Chardonnay in the fridge, I'm probably not bringing some Premier Crew white burgundy to her place. I might, but I'm keeping it in the beverage fridge outside or in the snow outside, hidden away so that we can enjoy it 
and then she can you know spritz up her box chardonnay with a little bit of sprite to make it feel fancier you know that's 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 kind of what we do you know um and it is it's just something that you got to be a little strategic about it right so that's number one is kind of know your crowd uh, whether it's friends family your company holiday party whatever the case is it's nice to know whether or not people are into wine if they are if if they are really into it you got a bunch of wino friends like we do and you ended up at someone's house to hang out then yeah maybe you break out some of the good stuff you can bring out you know your cool you know culty napa wines or your first growths or your you know grand cruise and maybe you don't have to go that big but you know you're really maybe you're more small kind of uh, mom and pop shop, like craft producers that are hard to track down. Maybe you bring some of the cool stuff. If it's a little bit more of a free for all and your uncle just loves crushing Michelob Ultras, but he will pound wine if given the opportunity, maybe you bring a little something for him that's not quite as fancy. You know, you, you find some, you know, easier, kind of cheap and cheerful Italian wines, maybe some not necessarily Napa wines, but like California wines. Uh, that are just solid, but not necessarily going to break the bank, right? Um, in terms of varieties, I mean, you can pretty much run the gamut based on what what you're into. I mean, I, I love bringing oddballs and things that are interesting to holiday parties because we have a bunch of wine fans and friends. You know, it's something that we really try and do is like, hey, let's bring something cool that we can like share with people uh, that we love, but maybe they haven't been introduced to. Um, and like going over to my in-laws, it's like, all right, let's bring some kind of just like, you know, stuff. It's red wine. It's white wine. We're actually not going to drink it. So we're going to bring it to their place so they can drink it, <laughs> you know, so that kind of wine. And we go from there. Um, I don't try and bring anything, you know, too, um, too geeky unless it has a specific purpose like if you know you're going to be enjoying like some apple pie at, after dinner maybe you bring that dessert white wine or something to like hey this would be cool to have with this pie and make sure you have like that purpose behind it um you know don't just leave it on the counter for someone to you know open up because aunt sally who loves her sweet wine might finish that bottle before cocktail hours you know over right so be a little strategic when you're bringing wine to your holiday parties know who's in the crowd your ace in the hole is pinot noir i mean if you get a nice sexy pinot noir the big red wine lovers enjoy it the lighter wine lovers enjoy it it's hard to go wrong with things like sauvignon blanc and a decent chardonnay uh, just kind of your tried and true staples if you're just trying to play the field some of those can be a little polarizing, but they're not going to be more polarizing than, say, like Riesling or something like that. You bring you bring an Alsatian Riesling to the table, and people are like, oh, we don't like sweet wine. Now you have to try and explain to them that it's not sweet and yada, 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 but whatever. Just try and play it cool. Spoil your geeky wine friends and let the folks that aren't into wine drink the stuff that you don't want to drink. Basically, pro tip for the holiday season and just entertainment in general, to be completely honest. All right. All right, let's get into, ooh. So we've had, this is this is a, we've brought this up a, a lot over the last, I mean, few months of like wineries who have changed hands and ownership over the last year. There's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions, it feels like. Um, and this is a great question that really kind of dives right to the heart of that. Uh, the winery we love has new ownership. What can we expect? And are the wines going to change? Now... I'm going to be completely honest. 
yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that's kind of inevitable. You know, when you see, and this is what I tell people, I, I preface, I preface it with this, is that if a winery you love changes ownership or the winemaking team changes, and I'll give you a couple examples of this, it's going to be a couple years before you see any significant changes. And the reason for that is because they already have wine in barrel from the prior regime, right? Like there's already stuff being made that was made in this style that they have historically been known for. And it's unlikely that within a year or two, you're going to see some like wide sweeping change. Once you get to that third, fourth year down the line, now their new team is really going to have a little bit more of an effect on what they're producing. Now, there are a few different ways that this kind of goes down, right? It could be um, like up at Pride Mountain Vineyards um, when Sally left up there to leave for a new position. You know, she had been there for a long time. And, you know, you have kind of this established brand that does really, really well for itself, both here in the valley and then, you know, out and about around the U.S., you know, the ownership didn't change, just the winemaking, the winemaker left and they have a new person there doing the doing the work. You know, in theory, you know, that new person is going to kind of be the new steward of that style. You know, some things might change slightly. You know, that happened a couple years ago, three years ago, maybe. So we're kind of right at that point where it's like, all right, if there are going to be changes, we're going to start noticing them. But that's a brand that you hope it's so well established and it's so well known that there's not going to be this like wide sweeping change. They're not going to completely flip to the other side of the coin and make something different just because someone new is running the show in the cellar. No, they have a certain style. They have a house style that they're trying to maintain. And that person's going to be in charge of carrying that on. You know, that's, you know, a situation where I think it, you know, it's, it's a little bit more of a synergy there. Like you're really trying to continue what has already been established rather than like overhaul something, right? Um, you know, I experienced this when Raymond Vineyards was purchased by Boisset Family Estates when I was working at Raymond. Um, you had the winemaking team change. You had the ownership all change. Um, there was a lot of big changes that happened. And the wines did change in style. Um, I felt that they actually, you know, in my honest opinion, got a little bit better. Uh, they, I think they were a little bit more complex, a little more interesting. And I was like, oh, I'm actually really happy. And I was in the sales. I was in hospitality at that time. It was my job to sell wine. And talking to club members that would come in, whether it was in the taste room or over the phone, I was like, no, like the wines are, I'm actually really happy where these wines are going. And I think it was a great and a really great example of, you know, new ownership coming in and saying, hey, let's really take this great base that we have and not completely change it, but just touch them things up to make sure that they are kind of more on a, a level playing field with what else is happening with the, you know, competition, so to speak, around us. Um, I think that was a really great example. Um, you see, you know, LVMH come in and buy Phelps. You see a South Korean company, I think, come in and buy Schaefer. You saw Gallo buy Rombauer and Maskin, I believe. Uh, those all happened very, very recently. We're kind of just waiting to see what will happen. Uh, you know, it, hopefully they don't change too much if you're a big fan of any of those wines. Uh, but, 
you're just going to have to wait for a couple years. The wines are not going to change too, too much. But eventually, if they have new winemaking teams, if they have new management and all this other stuff, there's a chance that they could change. Um, I actually had an experience just this last week with something like this. And it was I was up at um, Stony Hill Vineyards, which uh, I think some of you will know. It's, it's an iconic producer that the McRae family started out here uh, decades ago. Um, they had a winemaker out there by the name of Mike Collini, who was the winemaker uh, for about 40 years. He passed away pretty recently, unfortunately. Um, he had retired, I guess, uh, around 2020 or so, or 2018, maybe 2020, somewhere in there. I don't remember the exact dates. Um, but this, you know, this property had been owned and operated by the same family with the same winemaker for decades, right? And then they sold to uh, Longmeadow Ranch, the, far- the folks that the family that owns Farmstead, the restaurant here in St. Helena. And then eventually Mike Collini, the winemaker, retired. He left during that time, uh, which was about two years, like 2018 to 2020. And then in 2020 into 2021, it was purchased by the Lawrence family, which is, I think they're a big farming family out of Arkansas, but they own a bunch of properties out here now between uh, Stony Hill Burgess. They bought the old Luna property, uh, a brand called Ink Grade. Um, they've they've kind of just gone big into the wine industry out here, and it was it was a really interesting tasting for this question in particular because we sat down at Stony Hill and it's a beautiful spot. Highly recommend going up there. The wines are phenomenal. But it was interesting because we were tasting, they're known for their older vintages. They, they've historically, like their white wines in particular, they make a little bit of Cabernet, but their white wines are wines that you can age for 30 years and they're going to be delicious. And we tried side by side some of their 2012 and 2020 Chardonnay, I believe. And then we also tried a 2020 Cabernet and a 2017 Cabernet. So it was a couple of wines. Oh, excuse me. Still got a little bit of this cough hanging around. So it was a couple of wines from both kind of the old regime and the, the original ownership and, you know, Mike Collini, who is the winemaker out there. And then from uh, what was, I guess, probably the Longmeadow Ranch era uh, of wines that were being made out there. So the Lawrence family who took over in 2020, 2021, you're just starting to see some of those wines come out. I, maybe we had a 2021 shard. I don't remember. Um, this was like a week. This wasn't even a week ago. It was like a few days ago, but whatever. Um, it was interesting because you're trying the wine side by side. And now you're just like, okay, let's see the proof in the pudding. Granted, you have to take vintage into account, you know, especially when you're trying a Chardonnay that's 11 years old versus one that's, say, three, two or three years old. Same thing with Cabernet being three years old versus six years old. Like, There's going to be some vintage variation there that you're going to have to kind of keep track of. And it might be my nostalgia getting the better of me, but I vastly preferred the wines from Mike Collini and the McRae family. Uh, those wines from you know 20, uh, 2017 and, and back, I was like, these are, this is what I know of this brand. This is what I love about these wines and what I have loved. I've been drinking these wines for basically my entire life. Like I have a lot of, there are a lot of heartstrings tied up with Stony Hill for me. And I didn't even know the family that well. I didn't know Mike that well. Actually, Brittany, uh, the HBIC herself plays bocce ball or had played bocce ball uh, on with Mike for years on Tuesday nights here in St. Helena. So she knew him better than I did. Um, <clears throat> so it, it just, it was, you know, we have a lot of emotion kind of tied up into it. So I will give you that, that I probably have that bias for sure. 
But in tasting the wines from what I'm guessing is the, the time when uh, LMR was in charge, um, maybe, you know, uh, the Lawrence family helped kind of finish those. And I don't, I don't even know if that winemaking team transitioned, you know, within that, to be completely honest. I haven't even bothered to ask. Um, I'm curious, though, now, because the wines are different. They're still very, very good, very clean, but they are different. And it's, you know, it's just going to kind of depend on what you prefer. Um, the Riesling was still lights out. The Riesling was killer. Um, but I, I spent a, probably more money than I needed to on the older vintages. So I'm like, these are kind of like the historical stuff. Like these are the original owners. There's some of Mike's wines. He's having passed away, not going to be making wine anymore. Like these are wines that I need to buy and have as like a collector of cool wine. Um, so those like the heartstrings were heavy. Um, and I, and in tasting the newer vintages, I'm like, Oh, they're changing. Like there, there's, there were subtle differences in the style and just tasting them. I'm like, there's, they're, they're very well polished. They're very pretty wines, but they are just they're a little different than what they were in the past. And that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of is what it is. And then we as consumers get to decide, hey, is it still worth it to buy these wines based on these changes? Or maybe I search for something else. It's That's the decision that I'm going to have to make that many fans of Stony Hill or Pride or Schaefer or <laughs> Joseph Phelps, Rombauer, you know, all these businesses that have been purchased or changed hands or winemaking teams have changed. Those are the decisions that we now get to make is, all right, maybe they change. Maybe they don't. Maybe the owners maintain it. Maybe they strip it down to the bones and say, hey, we're just going to close down this brand and open up a new one. Um, and go from there. You're not really sure. With some of these more historic brands, especially when you talk about a, like a Rombauer or a Phelps or a Stony Hill, the assumption is like these have, in theory, a really great following. You're probably not going <laughs> to strip that thing down for parts, right? Like that's not how that works. Um, you're buying that brand because you want to you know, command a certain level of that market share or it integrates like in a, with a small brand like Stony Hill, it integrates into kind of a grander portfolio of small brands so to speak. So um, the changes in owner ownership can be tough. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that it can go. The best recommendation I have is continue buying the wines. And if a year comes where you're not as big of a fan of them as you were previously, then stop buying them and find something else that's cool and interesting. Um, and if you still really love them, then continue buying them. You know, that's just kind of the, the way it goes. It, it's kind of a cold-blooded way of putting it, I guess, of just like either buy it or don't. Um, but you never really know how these things are going to shake out long term. Some things do really improve and in, in increase in quality. Some just change. And that change sometimes isn't for everybody, right? All right. With Harvest Complete. Uh, yes, it is. It really is. With Harvest Complete. What are you looking forward to? Everything I've been doing for the last couple of weeks. Sleeping, primarily. Um, and actually the ability to enjoy wine again. Um, this is something that you might not expect from a guy who makes wine for a living. But at a certain point as I wrap up harvest, you know, it's, things are slowing down. You're getting closer to the holidays. You're hanging out with friends a little bit more because you got some free time. And inevitably, some bottle. You go out to dinner, you open up some wine, 
and it just doesn't taste good right now. Actually, I was drinking a little bit of um, uh, this just Tuscan, you know, blend last night. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good, but it's just, I don't know, wine's just, it's not there for me just yet. There are certain things that I do really enjoy, like certain white wines. Actually, that Italian red was really super yummy, but for the most part, if I'm hanging out with people right now, I'm drinking a cocktail or having a beer. Like it's, I'm excited to be able to enjoy wine again. That's probably something that I look forward to after harvest more than anything is that it takes that like couple of weeks. Like I'm, I'm done coming home soaked in grape juice. I'm not tasting wine for work every single day. I'm getting a little bit more back to like an equilibrium here. And I can actually enjoy wine again rather than just be doing it for work. Like right now, tasting wine feels monotonous. You know, it's it's like you're really, really full, right? But the food is so good that you want to try and finish your plate. So you take one more bite and chewing's like monotony. You're like, this is really good, but I just don't want to eat anymore. Like we've all hit that point. That's exactly how I feel about wine right now. It's like, it's so, like it's good and I love it, but I just can't wrap my head around enjoying wine any more than just appreciating for what it is. So I'll like have like a little sip here, a little sip there, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And typically I lean on a cocktail or a beer right now. I'm looking forward to enjoying wine again. And number two, I am very much looking forward to being caught up on sleep so that I can just get back to normal. I started going back to the gym officially. I am sore as shit today. Because uh, it was day before yesterday. That second day is always rough. I got to go back today and try and work through it. It's not going to be fun. But like getting back to that normal routine. Harvest is just such a barrage. And it's so crazy that at a certain point, it's just nice to get back to some sense of normalcy and be able to enjoy life kind of the way you want and not have to be up in the wee hours of the morning or super, super early or out super, super late in the cold, being wet wearing work boots and just dirty and just gross. It's just at a certain point, it's just nice to be home and relax. Like the R&R, I cannot stress it enough. This period of time from like post Thanksgiving through January is kind of our hibernation. We might be getting getting ready for a bottling run. We might, we obviously have work to do, but it's so less stressful and there's so much more free time that we have that we can just kind of live life to the fullest again and just kind of do what we want on our terms, which is really, really nice. So with Harvest Complete, I'm looking forward to life just being normal again. It's one of, it's might sound silly, but to be completely honest, that's exactly what I look for uh, once we wrap up a season. It's just, I just want to get back to normal. For sure, for sure, for sure. All right, next. Um, actually... This question is something I could probably do a whole episode on. Ooh, before I timestamp this, this next question is, how are wine businesses structured to be successful with how expensive it is to get in the industry? Is it better to take on partners, self-fund, take out a business loan, or so on? Um, This is, I'm going to do a whole episode on this one. I'm going to save this. I'm going to save this question where I think next week, maybe next week or the week after. We'll talk about this, or maybe in the new year. Um, I'm going to save this one and earmark this because there are kind of like four ways. In my mind, there are like four ways that you can really get into wine. One being, um, you know, you buy 
a property and a winery and you start making wine off the estate and go from there. Um, and you do, you know, self-fund it some you, you made Boku bucks or, you know, you get a business, well, I don't know, you know, get a business loan, whatever. And you, you know, and you go for it. Um, two is you do take on partners. It's kind of like the V like look for that VC money. You take on investors and try and fund it that way and do in essence, the same thing. Um, three would be to custom crush. You're buying fruit and renting out a facility and, you know, trying to kind of piecemeal it together a little bit more. You could also have partners in that project as well. And then four, you're buying bulk juice. In essence, pre-made wine that wineries are just selling off because they don't want it. They're not going to use it. And you're a blending house, which is in essence how the prisoner started, if I'm not mistaken. So um, there are kind of like those four ways that you kind of structure kind of the core of your wine business about how you're, how you're going to operate. And depending on which one you choose, there are certain pitfalls and certain ways to, you know, move towards profitability and success and so on and so forth. Um, but that's I could probably do two episodes on that, to be completely honest. So I'm going to save that question. Um, we'll get into that in a lot more detail because I'm going to sit down and like write some notes to actually probably do that a little less live and free flowy like I normally do because I want to make sure I hit some things right. I'm also not like a true blood, like entrepreneur finance type. So I'll probably say some pretty stupid shit during that episode, which some of you can correct me. I'm totally okay with that, but I'd like to really dive into some of the little details and nuances of how some of that actually goes down. So we're going to save that. We're, we're going to save that one. Uh, right. The next question, though. Oh, my God. I can't type. There we go. All right. What do you think of emerging wine regions? Whether it was Oregon, now Texas, places like Missouri. Are they going to have the ability to compete with a place like Napa or are they just doing it more for posterity's sake? I'm, I mean, okay. Realistically, someone asked me this about Texas specifically, not that long ago because they, they, it was a couple, they live, um, they live out in Dallas and they go out to Hill country every once in a while. And they're like, yeah, we found some good stuff, but a lot of it's just not there yet. Like it's, they're, they're just not, they're nowhere near where Napa's at. And, you know, I, I'm not going to try, I'm not going to shit on anyone who's in this industry. I try not to anyway, but, you know, I like talking shit, so it's going to happen. It means I like you. I, I, that's how I operate is that if I'm talking shit to you, it means I typically in, enjoy your company and I appreciate you. It's kind of like, you know, being picked on in elementary school. It means they like you. Don't worry about it. The biggest lie we were ever sold. Anyway, um, the biggest thing with emerging wine market, with emerging like wine areas are a couple things. One is that, because Napa did this back when it was an emerging wine area, is that Napa did what any of these wine regions are doing, is that they try to emulate who's doing it really, really well. So in Napa's case, uh, back in the 1800s, then post-prohibition into the you know mid 20th century, you had folks emulating France. They're like, France is the bell of the ball. You know, this is who's been doing it right. We're going to make wine like them. And 
to a certain extent it works because there are wine techniques and varietals and things that will naturally lend themselves to making good wine but if you're not catering to the land underneath your feet and the weather and what mother nature is doing around you you're probably going to make a slightly subpar product because you're not capitalizing or mitigating you know some of those things and it's and i think this is the biggest challenge for any emerging wine area you know whether it's texas whether it was oregon whether it's washington missouri and any place that has up and coming an up and coming wine scene you have to try and figure out what works for you it's okay to you know try and emulate someone and use them as like a benchmark but if you're making wine out in Fredericksburg, Texas, and you're buying grapes from, you know, the Panhandle, which I, from what I understand is where most of the grapes are grown in Texas. They're not actually anywhere near Fredericksburg. They're way far away. You know, what do you, I mean, what if you get, if you get, you know, rainstorms during harvest and, and, you know, a really, really variable weather compared to what Napa gets, how are you mitigating that? How are you going to adjust and adapt and overcome? It's much hotter there. You, typically, you have a shorter growing window. Are you actually going to get the complexity and the ripeness that you want because of the shorter growing season? Or do you have to find ways to mitigate that? Like, There's going to be certain things that are going to be challenging for you. Just like Napa back in the day. There are going to be certain things that are going to work. There's going to be certain things that just simply aren't going to work. So... I think the biggest challenge for these emerging wine markets is figuring out that secret sauce of what is our what are our standards and just procedures and, and how are we how we operate. And so I think, you know, a lot of these wine regions have a lot of potential. There's some good wine being made out in Texas. There's also a lot of bad wine. Uh, there's good wine being made in Napa. There's also some pretty terrible wine being made in Napa. It just depends it just depends on where you're at and what you like. Because again, if I say something's good or something's terrible, that's just a subjective opinion. It it does not mean that there's some blanket, you know, hey, they're doing it right because this is the right way and they're doing it wrong. That's not how wine works. But there are certainly wines that I tasted uh, in Texas. I've only been to out towards Hill Country one time and there were plenty of wines that I enjoyed. There are far more that I didn't um, just because they were overtly flawed in my opinion, uh, lots of VA, uh, lots of spoilage issues, um, which is something else that I see in emerging wine areas more often than not. In And this, this goes for anywhere I've been, whether it's been in California, uh, in Texas, in Missouri, um, this is like the number one thing I see that's probably a bigger issue for a lot of these emerging wine markets is that their sellers just aren't clean. They're not, it, it, it's it's kind of a shit show. Like they, they're they making wine and some of them are passable. Most of them aren't very good. I'm like, yeah, your cellar is disgusting. Like you need a pressure washer in here. You need to top up these containers. You need to dump that. You need to get rid of all this shit that's just like piling up in the corner. Like it's just like, this is technically like a food processing plant. It needs to be clean. Like this is not clean. And there are a lot of immaculate facilities out there that people are very diligent about keeping clean and tidy. Many of you who listen to this understand, and I've said this many, many times, is that winemaking 
as well as, you know, beer and probably distilling. I don't know the ins and outs of distilling, but a lot of it's you're just a janitor. Like you're just cleaning and sanitizing stuff nonstop. So when I walk into a cellar and it is like I see like wine on the floor or I see like stuff like growing in the like literally growing in the corner. I'm like, this place is just gross. It's no wonder you're not making great wine here because it's just dirty. Because if you if you can't even squeegee the floor and hose it down at hose it down and then squeegee it after the fact, I guarantee you're not cleaning the barrels the way you ought to be. I guarantee you're probably not cleaning your tanks and your other containers the way you should be. You know you're doing the good enough for government work kind of mentality, and that's not going to make great wine. It's just not. So that's the thing I see in emerging wine areas. Whether they're well-established at this, because even well-established places have these issues. And you walk in there, you're like, man, I don't know, this makes sense. It, it just, it, all of a sudden, you know those wines, you've tasted them, you see the cellar, and you're like, oh, I get it. I get it now. This is why they're quirky like this. This is why the VA is a little high. This is why all these things are coming down the pipeline. So the emerging wine markets, they always have a lot of potential, but that's that might be like the a number one thing is that you know you can kind of mitigate certain things about mother nature about you know and when you pick how you farm there are things you can do but if you're not keeping your facility clean and your shit tight there it doesn't matter what you're doing in the vineyard you're going to make something probably subpar and just kind of funky and that's the issue i see with a lot of emerging wine areas is that the diligence of cleanliness and you know sanitizing things is not there and believe me i hate doing that work i hate the fact that i have to go out and clean things for two hours before i can start working and then at the end of the day i have to clean it for another you know hour or so to wrap up it's not fun i don't like doing it but guess what if you're gonna make great wine you gotta clean your hoses you gotta clean your containers you gotta clean your barrel you gotta do all this stuff and if you're not doing it then that's that's a huge problem so the emerging wine areas always have amazing potential there's good wine being made in a lot of places in this day and age What's going to separate the men from the boys, so to speak, are those that actually take the time to pay attention to those tiny little details and try and get better at them every single day. And there are a lot of places in that I visited that just don't do that, which is a shame because the wines are fine, but they could be so much better if someone was actually just paying attention. It's really that simple. All right, last but certainly not least, we got a little bit of time left. We got we can knock out one more, I think. And this is going to be a fun one. Actually, it might be a pretty quick one. It, it typically this is actually a pretty quick question for me to answer. Uh, we bought a wine filter to remove sulfites. Does it actually work? We feel better the next day after using it, but is that just a placebo effect, or is it actually doing something that is beneficial? I'm going to put my coffee down. I'm going to have one more sip first. Mm. I got my fancy new Ahsoka Star Wars mug. I'm so happy with it. Oh, it's so nice. All right. I want everyone to listen up for one hot second. I'm going to get a little closer to the mic. I'm going to stand here, look dead into the camera. If you're watching this on YouTube, it might be a little bit creepy. Sulfites are not the problem. 
say it one more time, sulfites are not the problem. Listen, if you, that being said, if you wake up the next morning having used whatever filtration device, aeration device, whatever it is, and you feel better and that placebo works for you, more power to you. I'm not going to argue with it. I'm probably going to make fun of you a little bit, just a little bit, because I know that it actually is having little to no effect on the thing you think it's having an effect on. That's just the reality. And I understand you might not like that answer, but that is reality. All right. That being said, it's like having my cup of coffee in the morning. I don't need to have a cup of coffee in the morning to start my day. I don't, but I do because every time I do, it's part of the ritual and I feel better and I feel like I'm getting my day started off on the right foot. When I have a nice warm or piping hot cup of coffee for my brand new Star Wars mug, it makes me happy and it starts the day off on the right foot. And if you're ending your day on the right foot by quote unquote filtering the sulfites out of your wine, have a blast. Good for you. It doesn't make any sense, but good for you. Good for you. We'll probably do another episode entirely. I think I did a, a sulfide episode earlier this year. At least I did. I talked about them quite a bit during our wine additives episode. You can go back and, and listen to that. That was from either late this last winter or early in the spring. And it talks about a lot of the additives that we use within winemaking. Sulfites being one of them. Now, I want to reiterate this, and I'll touch on it a little bit here, is that if you've had any canned goods, beef jerky, dried fruit, um, any number of beverages or processed foods, the chances of you consuming more sulfites that are in a, a bottle of wine are very, very high. That's just the way it is. The only way you're really, really going to avoid them mostly is if you eat like a hundred percent certified organic that's the only way that's the only way if you're not doing that you're probably ingesting sulfites in some way shape or form them is the ropes i don't really know what to tell you these filters and a lot of what these companies are pitching is in essence snake oil. It's it's not something that's actually having an effect, but it's enough of a placebo, and they're jumping on this bandwagon of like, oh, rah, 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 sulfites are bad. And they're trying to capitalize on it and make a quick buck. You know, and good on them for being, you know, I guess creative, but they're not tackling the actual issue that's causing the problem. There are certain compounds within wine that the way your body processes them on top of just the dehydration that you get from consuming alcohol, also potentially the sugar levels that are in that wine, which is a much bigger issue that I will touch on before we wrap up uh, as a part of this conversation. Completely lost my train of thought. It's fine. Everything's fine. I'm going to take another sip of coffee. It'll come back. I completely forgot what I was talking about. I was on a roll. I was feeling it. Oh, I was so excited. I love debunking 
these stupid devices that actually do nothing. Okay, where were we? All right, so they are in essence selling a little bit of snake oil because they're capitalizing, they're capitalizing on something trendy. This is in essence like the gluten-free fad that happened not all that long ago and people are like, oh, and, and to be fair, like something like gluten when consumed in volume can create things like inflammation and you know maybe make you a little achier, a little tighter. Maybe it's not the best thing for you. Maybe you eat too much pasta and your tummy hurts. The difference between your tummy hurting after eating too much pasta and having celiacs is a very different conversation. And the same thing goes for sulfites. If you're if you are overtly allergic to sulfites, it is a huge health issue versus you know maybe having a minor and I mean a minor sensitivity to it. You know, in which case you're going to have to shop around to find certified organic wines because that's really going to be the only way that you avoid them. Because um, European wines do have sulfites in them. Sorry, they do. They're just not labeling them that way because they have different rules and regulations. Sorry to burst your bubble there. The, bi the bigger issues and the reasons why you feel gross the next morning, more often than not, when it comes down to the wine you're drinking, is the same, it's this analogy that I've been using forever. And it starts with the quality of the wine you're consuming. There are certain brands that people will say, they're like, you know, you know, this has been our favorite wine forever, but every time we drink a bottle, we wake up and we're a little groggier. We got a little bit more of a headache, but when we drink these smaller producers and these higher end wines, like we feel fine, but we don't want to have to spend, you know, $70 a bottle every night. We want to drink a bottle of wine. I'm like, I get it. I get it. But if you're willing to buy the cheaper wine and have the headache the next day, then you're good. If you don't want the headache, then you need to buy higher quality stuff. It's that simple. This happens all the time where folks will come out and be like, you know, we've been drinking wine for four days straight and not getting hammered. But, you know, we're a little buzzed. You know, we had a driver. They took us around to three wineries. We went to dinner and we woke up the next day. And yeah, it's vacation state of mind. Like we're feeling good anyway. But we're not like dragging ass like we would be at home. Like we've been day drinking for four days straight. Like we feel relatively fine. And the vacation state of mind is a real thing. But if you are drinking higher quality wines than what you're buying at your local liquor store or whatever, that does have an effect. And this is where we get into that sugar and sweetness conversation because there is a lot, and I mean a lot more sugar in the wines that are on your grocery store shelves than you realize. And this is something that I think the industry is going to have to kind of come to terms with in some way, shape, or form as the years go on uh, because there are so many additives that can be used. There's a lot of sugar in certain things. Uh, animal products can be used in winemaking. Like there's so much stuff that can go into it outside of just sulfites. That there's going to have to, you know, something's going to have to kind of adapt or change to let folks know what's actually going on in their wines. But very typically, the reason that you feel like garbage the next day is because, one, you're drinking a low-quality product that's very, very high-processed, that's very, very processed. Think of going to McDonald's and having a couple of Big Macs and how you feel afterwards. And I love a Big Mac. I trained for years to be able to eat a Big Mac. That's how my family operated. You started with a hamburger. You graduated to a cheeseburger. Then once you could do two cheeseburgers and your fries, you could get a Big Mac. 
That's how my family worked. No lie. That's how I was raised, was in training to be able to eat an entire Big Mac. I love Big Macs. They're delicious. I also feel like trash after eating them. If I go to market restaurant here in St. Helena and I have their burger, which is a fucking giant thing and it's delicious and I eat that whole thing, I actually feel pretty damn good. Why? Because the ingredients are better. It's made better. And like I said, I still love a Big Mac, but I find, but I know that if I buy the Big Mac, I'm going to feel like trash. And if I go to my local cool restaurant, I'm probably going to feel better afterwards and more satiated, right? Wine's no different. If you're buying heavily processed stuff, and the issue is that many of these wines don't tell you that, right? You have to either be intimately familiar with their winemaking techniques or know someone on the inside, right? That's going to create issues. And if you have a bunch of sugar in that wine to make it appealing to a broad audience, now you're doubling down on the negative, really, effects of that wine. And that's why you're hungover as shit. You're drinking sugary grape drink that's been heavily, heavily processed. That is why. It has nothing to do with the sulfites. And I am going to die on this hill, I have a feeling, Uh, because there are... This is something that is so, so common. This happened to me. I was walking through the airport coming back from Texas not two weeks ago and talking to the TSA guy, just, you know, just talking shop as, you know, I'm getting wanted. I got chosen for one of them. Slightly. He's like, where are, you, where are you heading? I'm like, oh, heading home, Northern California. He's like, oh, what do you do out there? I was like, oh, make wine. He's like, oh, wine. I love wine, but the sulfites, they do me in every single time. They do me in every time. And, I, you know, it's early in the morning. I'm like, I don't have time to explain the intricacies of sulfites and why this TSA agent is out of his mind when he come, comes down to it. But this is what goes through my head. It's a, it's so prevalent and it's just wrong. It's just wrong. I hate to tell it to you. Um, you know, lower sulfites are probably better than higher, higher sulfites. But even then, the ace in the hole, if you really want to make sure you don't have a headache when you wake up the next morning, is not the sulfites. Those aren't the issue. It's probably drink some water <laughs> at some point throughout the evening. Maybe have a little bit of some electrolytes before you go to bed. And try to find small producers that make you know lo- wines that are not heavily processed with no or little to no sugar in them. Preferably, you know, little, yeah, little to no sugar. And that's how you do it. Don't stop blaming the sulfites. Your wine devices are a placebo effect. Again, if they work for you, have at it, but it's snake oil. Sorry. All right, that's it. We went a little long, but this has been the November question and answer episode. We banged out a lot. Oh, that was a lot. This is the first time I've been able to talk for more than like 10 minutes and actually get through it without just coughing hysterically. Uh, which has been really, really nice. So uh, we will circle back around on that wine business kind of like structure question because there's a lot of ways that we can dissect that and talk about how to actually make a wine business work. And as someone who had to do that from the ground up, intimately familiar with at least a couple of those routes. So we're going to get into that for sure. Uh, Thank you all so, so much for tuning in. Again, please be sure to like the episode, uh, share it, subscribe to the podcast, uh, check it out on YouTube as well. We are posting a bunch of content on YouTube between tasting notes 
uh, shorts and updates from the winery itself uh, for just like day-to-day -day operation stuff. So be sure to check out MTGA Wines on YouTube. Uh, hit subscribe and like our videos, share them with friends, especially for those that really want more information and like boots on the ground, like showing you how a winemaker actually operates in Napa. That's what we're trying to do is open up the cellar doors and just let you walk around with us. So that'll be the place to do it. You can also follow us on the Instagram um, as well as the social network formerly known as Twitter at MTGA Wines. We'll be back next week with another new episode. I hope you all have recovered from the family gatherings and the outrageous amounts of turkey and stuffing, all that good stuff. I appreciate all of you. Have a great rest of the week. We'll see you next time.